We are uh, continuing our study in Romans uh, this morning, and we'll be uh, looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse uh, through verse 7. And uh, before we start the reading uh, of Scripture, I want to remind us of what Romans 12, 1 and 2 said, which is that all of this section of Paul's letter to the Romans is an unpacking of the implications of everything that he said in chapters 1 through chapters 11. And that the very act now of being believers, of being a new creation in Christ, is a way in which we are now pleasing sacrifices. We now live a life of worship and mind renewal in line with the character and nature of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so everything that now follows is the logical implications for Paul of what happens when you are a new creation in Christ. This is how we live. This is what it looks like to see our minds renewed in line with the mind of God. And so this morning, let's uh, take some time to hear God's word, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and following. Hear now God's word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Behold, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, but do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let everyone, every person, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. What do you have, uh, what you have, oh, for Pete's sakes. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, is not, he does not bear the sword in vain. 
For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to the very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask again that your spirit would continue to work in and through us. Lord, that we might in ever greater degrees understand the breadth and the depth, the height and the richness of your love for us and what it means to be those who love well. We ask that you would continue to build us into those who love well. And we ask, Lord, that anything that is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So I want us to start from the back of this text and work forward because Romans 13, certainly in this day and age, has been uh, a text that's been bantered about regarding how we respond to the pandemic and 15 other things. And it is a text that taken out of the context of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, or out of Paul's larger context of the flow of his argument, can seem rather odd and isolated and certainly easily misused. So I want to suggest that what we have in 13 only makes sense in light of what we read in verses 9 and following in in chapter 12. That the way in which love becomes the mode by which Christians interact, we create a space in and through the world which is always odd sometimes offensive, but nonetheless transformative because it is based in love, not in fear, not in anger, not in pursuit of one's enemy, but in pursuit of the ethic of the kingdom of God. And so we have to remember that what we have here is Paul writing to Jewish and uh, Roman folks who experience authoritarian power in the extreme. The Jewish folks who are now filtering back into Rome after having been kicked out by Claudius six years before. Can you imagine how tone deaf one might think this letter from Paul would be to Jewish folks who are filtering back in, who lost their houses and their livelihoods just six years before? And Paul's like, don't worry. As long as you are living a good life and are respectful of authority, everything will go great. And they're going, Paul, really? What world do you live in? And Paul's answer would be a world impacted by the resurrection of God. And so, yes, it may have actually been indicting. The Jewish folks may have been cantankerous. There was evidence that there were large riots. They may not have acted properly. They may have also been persecuted and unjustly kicked out. The historical record is somewhat muddled. 
But what Paul is saying here is not that the government is necessarily your friend in all situations, and we know plenty of places around the world where it certainly isn't true. And 13 only makes sense in light of the end of 12, which is the love of God is not simply oriented towards me and mine. It's not oriented towards those who can do me well. It is oriented towards, at its deepest and most profound and most earth-shattering way, at my enemy. And the power of this is shown in the history of the early church that by the time you get to a Justin the Apostate, who was a Roman emperor in the second century, who was trying to reimpose paganism and reignite persecution against the Christians, he just couldn't get any public buy-in. And you've seen the quote in your worship folder several times where his frustration is that he calls the Christians the impious Galileans. And the problem is the people on the street aren't excited about persecuting Christians because Christians are the people who love them, who took care of them during the plagues, who responded to scorn with compassion. And so within 200 years, you just can't get people excited about mass slaughtering of Christians. It undercuts the fabric of our society. So by loving their enemies, eventually that love made it so that those who were endeavoring to continue to do evil to God's people found less and less support among the people just a generation or two before who would have been perfectly happy to be distracted with, you know, I mean, when times are tough, there's nothing more distracting than taking it out on some group that we blame for it, right? I mean, there's nothing like a good pandemic to make us want to go burn down somebody's house. And this is historically true. You blame it on somebody poisoning the wells. You blame it on their lack of cleanliness. Whatever it is, there's nothing like a good world problem to go pick on some minority group and blame them for the calamity. And that had been true of Christians, and it had been true of Jewish folks, and sadly it had become of Jewish folks again. But by the time you get to the late 200s, the power of Christianity is such, lived out, that it's hard for people to be motivated to persecute Christians. Therefore, Paul can say, if you live out the ethic of the gospel, the love of the other and the love of enemy, increasingly the government won't be able to build up persecution against you because it support the people in the streets, the mob as they called them in Rome, won't support the persecution. It will fail. Our best plan to undo the attacks of the evil one is not fear, is not picking up more anger. It is doing the most incredibly difficult thing we could possibly imagine, which is what Paul calls us to in chapter 12. So I would suggest that 13 only makes sense in light of us living, in light of Chapter 12. And chapter 12, I'm going to break down two ways. God, uh, it is the love for another, one another, 
and then it is the love for the other. So very uh, quickly, the love for one another, we see this in verses 9 through 13 of chapter 12. Messiah's love, the love of Christ to us, is translated into respect, spirit-filled hard work, living out of hope, so powerfully represented to us and reminded this morning, the power of hope, the power of the resurrection, to see through death, to see through what is happening and recognize that God has a plan to restore all of this, to make what feels to us true right now, as C.S. Lewis puts it, completely untrue. The glory of the resurrection is everything that seemed to be true has now been made untrue by capital T truth. The truth of God's love for his creation and his love for you and me, and yes, even your enemies. And so we see that out of that love for one another, there is hope, there is patience in suffering, which Paul gives us no delusions about. There will not be an absence of suffering this side of glory. And if we know that and embrace it in love, then we're less likely to find a scapegoat for our suffering. Why will I be less motivated to persecute somebody when I'm having a bad day? Why will I not kick the dog or my kid? Because I know that suffering isn't going to be absent, but the Spirit will be present. Therefore, I don't have to act out of that brokenness. I don't have to act out of that anger or that impatience. But because I have the hope of the resurrection, I have the love of the Spirit, I can be patient in suffering, whether it is the little sufferings that we experience in our daily lives or the ones that become increasingly more significant, let alone what brothers and sisters face in places like White Swan, where the average life expectancy is lower than it is in many nations around the world that we would call developing nations, under 35 years of age. They're going to need a robust hope of the resurrection to endure that kind of suffering. And God is sufficient for the task. Constant energy uh, in prayer. Again, the prayer ministries of CVP after worship and the side, there will be an opportunity for prayer. The prayer ministries on Wednesday, so many ways in which we try and reaffirm that anything we do as a church only has weight and wisdom if it is bathed in and done in an act of and a spirit of prayer. Constant interaction with God. Not just praying that he'd make it all work out, but walking with him in the cool of the day, asking him questions, asking for his counsel and advice, expecting the Spirit to either use you or me or his word to answer my questions and to give me wisdom as I move on. Can you imagine telling the folks to go back to Rome and live at peace with their government and pay their taxes if they weren't bathing in prayer all the time. I think I've said this before, but the miracle of Daniel praying three times a day isn't because he was pious. It wasn't a religious duty. Can you imagine what came across Daniel's desk being the number two guy in the Babylonian Syrian 
The stuff that went across his desk would make your hair stand on end. This wasn't a polite bureaucracy. There were many things, I'm sure, that were benign. There were a lot of things where it's like, well, what are you going to do? Sign off on this. You're going to relocate these 5,000 people from this, this area we just conquered, and you're going to move them over there so that they can't raise an insurrection. Dear Lord, give me wisdom. How on earth does Daniel function in that if he is not bathed in prayer? How does he love his enemies who had just ripped him out of his own home and work for the good of that empire if he's not bathed in prayer? Lastly, we move on to the, need, the needs of God's people and hospitality. This love of God then inevitably pours out in such a way that we are sensitive to and cognizant of, because we're a body, as we learned last week, those places that may be hurting, spiritually, emotionally, or financially. A body is connected by nerves. It's connected by all means that the Spirit now connects us. Those analogies begin played out by our unity in the Spirit as one body. Therefore, we can and know and should act in love and care for those who are part of the community of faith. And so in verses 9 through 13, we have this, this initial summary of what it looks like for this love to be borne out within the body of Christ. And most of that makes sense to us and is rarely problematic. But then you get to 14 through 21. Now it gets a little sporty. Because now we're talking about people outside the faith and they don't necessarily agree with me and some of them are really hostile to me. And, and, and some of them certainly don't carry the same virtues, and I'm afraid that my kids, if they hear them, will get confused. And so I've got to maybe be separate, and maybe we have to figure out ways of isolation. And, and one thing happens after another, and the next thing you know, we don't really know anybody but anybody who's sort of under verse 19 through 13, 9 through 13. And we're all open to the idea that we would be nice to people in verses 14 through 21. We just don't happen to know them anymore. And we're scratching our heads. And this is clearly why my, I'm bald. Scratching my head trying to figure out why I don't have anybody to hang out with. But what does Paul say? Love for the other. We admire in our culture too much the vigilante. Right? There's a book that's just recently been written by a Christian uh, historian out of uh, Calvin said, called um, John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted the Faith and Fractured a Nation. It's fairly aggressive. It's clearly trying to sell a few copies. But here's the basic idea is that historically we look more and more, and it doesn't matter whether it's the Mars Hill sort of stuff that was really strong or uh, the Wild at Heart thing, but there's this whole sense in American Christianity and masculinity has something to do with if anybody messes with my family, I'll kill them. And if the law won't do it, I'll do it for them. Again, a little awkward when we read Romans. Not to say that there isn't a way in which, of course, we should all protect our families. And it doesn't mean willy-nilly we let anybody run over us. But this idea that we harbor in our hearts that real masculinity and real protection is... And all of the surveys sort of affirm this, is that we prefer presidents who are willing to go outside the lines. We love our heroes who take law into their own hands. We like Batman. We kind of like the Avengers. We like the name, the Avengers. They have no legal right to do what they do. They just happen to be strong enough to pull it off. 
but that just doesn't quite happen to be what Paul advocates for. And I don't know how that works out in us not inevitably always being doormats and we'll always be the kid picked on in the playground, spiritually or in the culture wars. But what I do know is it's going to be hard for the world not to find us to be really good candidates for persecution when what we're known for is taking vengeance on our enemies inside the church and outside, verbally, politically, and socially. And to whatever degree the language of the church and the demeanor of the church can be as far from being accused of being vengeful, being accused of delighting in the fall and the failures of our enemies, the more likely it will be hard for those who want to do us ill to get the common folk around us to support or to be, at least by omission, supportive of our undoing. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. If you need no other motivation than the quiet satisfaction of knowing you're putting burning coals on their heads, Scripture apparently is open to that sort of notion that if it'll get you to do the right thing, no, that's crass. What it does mean is this. Trust God for justice. And what you may do is, by showing kindness, Jesus tells us and Scripture tells us, you may win them over. And yet in the face of your responding to their violence and their eneminess, with love, then their fate is on their own heads because they've seen the love of Christ. They've seen the grace and the mercy. They've had a cool cup of water even if they would have denied you the same. The recapturing, the hope that we have is not that we will be vengeful, not that we will win. Near as I can tell, we already have. That's the point of Easter. Do we act in the confidence, not that I can win, but because victory has been won for me, I can humbly serve and extend love even to my enemy. And I can submit and interact with a government and a society that may not hold my values or may be running from them, but because I know that our God reigns, my response to their foolishness and their sin is a humble witness to the love and grace of God. A humble witness that says, that's not true. You're wrong. Would you like a glass of water? There is no compromise in that. There is no denying the truth of Scripture. There certainly isn't any backsliding what there is is maybe the outline of what it looks like to apply Romans 12 and to be people that it becomes increasingly harder and harder to persecute. Because when they persecute us, they persecute the only ones who've loved them unconditionally. The only ones who loved them when they were our enemies.
That's the power to transform the world. That's what Jesus did when he broke the power of sin and death on the cross. That's what he offers to you and me. And when Paul, who was all about vengeance, came face to face with that love, it made him the most powerful advocate for the most counterintuitive plan to launch a kingdom the world has ever seen. That kingdom is here. That kingdom continues to grow. And you and I, by the spirit and prayer and the power of God's love, can love the world the way that Christ loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you delight to walk along this road with us, that you understand how hard it is. May we not ignore your words where you confront the challenges of disciples who are slow to learn and weak in faith, and yet you still love them. When you forgave those who nailed you to the cross and said they, they do something they do not understand. And Lord, we ask that in whatever small way by your Spirit we might follow you as individuals and as your church, that we would love well as we have been loved. In Christ's name, amen.